You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Message Number Three. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program today. In the last two programs we've been considering two of the three messages that are are to go to the world in the times leading up to the second coming of Jesus. These messages are of admonition and warning because of the widespread false beliefs that are so common in our time. Anyone who takes notice of what's happening around the world nowadays must realise that something happening which is very unusual. There's a new catchword, the new normal. The Bible contains plenty of warnings and signs about what's happening now. And although it's obvious that bad things are happening on a worldwide scale, it's my feeling that much worse is yet to come, particularly in society. Global warming cannot be blamed for all the world's ills. The third message to go to the world is found in Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 to 12. And here is the passage. A third angel followed them, that's the other two, and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So, we need to understand what is the beast, what is the image to the beast, what is the mark of the beast about the eternal torment, and who are the saints. But first, it should be noticed that this message mentions two groups of people, those who worship the beast and or its image, contrasted with the saints. The first group will be destroyed by fire. The second group will be given eternal life. The second thing that needs to be understood is that the issues involving the last days are not environmental, they're not political, and they're not medical. The big issue, as is pointed out in the third message, is all about worship. And I need to emphasise that point. The big issue in the last days is worship. Who gets our worship? Verse 9 speaks about false worship, the worship of the beast or his image, 
contrast to true worship, the worship of God. In the first message to go to the world, there is a call to worship God, the Creator. That has to be true worship, and that's from Revelation 14.7. Therefore, any worship apart from worship of the Creator has to be false worship. The preceding chapter, Revelation 13, describes two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Many Bible scholars, as well as the Protestant reformers, have identified who the beast from the sea is. The evidence given in Revelation 13 verses 5 to 10 gives a number of identifiers. This is what the scriptures say. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now this passage cross-references to Daniel chapter 7 verses 23 to 25. It is important that we realise that to worship means to obey as well as to hold in high esteem. So then, who is this power described as the beast? Now, according to the Reformers and many scholars, it is the Roman Catholic Church. The time prophecies fit. The activities against God's true people have proven correct. The blasphemies against God have also proven correct. I've dealt with some of this in a previous program, but I want to share just two examples so that you know this is not some invention of mine or by someone who doesn't like the Roman Church. Here are two statements confirming the bold claims about the Pope, not just being the head of the Church, but claiming to be God. There are many more. Pope Nicholas said of himself, <clears throat> I am all and above all, so that God himself and I, the Vicar of God, have both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. Wherefore, if those things that I do be said not to be done of man but of God, what do you make of me but God? Again, if prelates of the church be called of Constantine for gods, then I, being above all prelates, seem by this reason to be above all gods. Wherefore, no marvel, if it be in my power to dispense with all things, 
yea, with the precepts of Christ. And I, I have the reference for this, but I won't read it. And then in the New York Roman Catholic Catechism, here is a statement. It says the Pope takes the place of Jesus Christ on earth by divine right. The Pope has supreme and full power in faith, in morals, over each and every pastor and his flock. He is the true vicar, the head of the entire church, the father and teacher of all Christians. He is the infallible ruler, the founder of dogmas, the author of and the judge of councils, the universal ruler of truth, the arbiter of the world, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of all, being judged by no one, God himself on earth. In that first statement, Pope Nicholas claimed that he was practically God on earth. But the second statement goes so far to claim that the Pope is God himself on earth. Now, if that's not blaspheming God and God's name, I don't know what is. Here is a claim that a created being, a mere human, has equality with and even supremacy to the Creator God. The other example about this beast power may, is about making war against the saints. Now, history records the terrible activities of the Roman Church against sincere Bible-believing Protestant Christians. Multi-millions were persecuted, tortured, imprisoned and murdered. Estimates range from 50 to 150 million who died at the hands of that church that claims to be Christian, but yet performed the most outrageous unchristian acts against innocent people. This is the beast power against which God asks his message to be proclaimed in the last days. But isn't that all in the past? Times and people have moved on since then, haven't they? My friends, it's my honest opinion that we are in one of the most dangerous times of Earth's history. Take notice that the world's most powerful country, United States of America, founded on principles of religious freedom to be free from oppression of the Roman Church, has just voted into power a Roman Catholic president. Take notice of the fact that world political leaders practically without exception, take a trip to, the, to Rome, to the Vatican, to have an audience with the Pope. Take note that the Pope is involving himself in environmental issues. Take note of some of the latest of the Pope's addresses, 
are following a theme about what God commanded people to observe the seventh-day Sabbath as a day of rest and worship. But the Pope, as can be expected, has substituted Sunday for Saturday. And take note that the Pope is encouraging people to keep Sunday as a day of rest for environmental reasons, which to me is a disguise to compel people to observe Sunday as the worship day. Take note that the aim of the secret service arms of Catholicism, the Jesuits, are very active in political, financial, educational and in religious arenas to promote the Pope to be the world's religious and political leader. These things are going on now, under our noses, without most people comprehending what's happening behind the scenes. So then, what is the image to the beast? And again, I've dealt with this previously. Revelation 13 deals with this in more detail. Revelation 13 speaks about the beast from the land, sometimes referred to as the second beast. A beast is symbolic for a power, be it both be it political or religious or both. Revelation 13 speaks about a beast that supports the first beast and causes people to worship the first beast. The second beast has been identified as United States of America, which has happened in the Middle Ages with other kingdoms, politically supports the Roman Church by carrying out the will of the Church. The image to the beast is what many Bible scholars have identified as apostate Protestantism. That is, Protestant churches and organisations that are in league with Rome. This is already happening in some of the large evangelical churches in the US and other parts of the world. They are promoting religious unity with the Roman Church. They will be the ones who will drive the arm that forces compliance with Rome. And that's happening now as well. We're going to have a little break and go on straight afterwards.
But the third message God wants delivered to the world is to not get involved with the beast, that's Rome, or the image to the beast, because these organisations, powerful as they might be, are doomed. They promote false religious beliefs. So what then is the mark of the beast? No, it's not a tattoo on the forehead or the hand. It's not a microchip inserted under the skin. It is compliance with the Roman Church as demonstrated in Sunday worship. The Roman Church is proud that it changed the worship day from Saturday to Sunday. That act, they say, is proof of its authority. The mark of the beast is acceptance and practice of Sunday worship in place of the seventh-day Saturday worship. It's a marker of time about whose command one chooses to obey, God's or the beast's. The forehead is symbolic for those who accept the idea with conviction. The hand stands for those who accept Sunday worship simply in an attempt to comply. The issue is similar to what happened with the apostles when arrested by the Jewish leadership and told not to preach about Jesus as the Saviour in the temple precinct. The apostles said to the Jewish Sanhedrin, We must obey God rather than men. The mark of the beast is keeping or assenting to keeping Sunday instead of Saturday as the day of rest and worship. It is a sign of who you choose to obey, God or man. The third message includes about what happens to those who have the mark of the beast, those who obey the Roman church instead of obeying God. The announcement is, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This passage of scripture has caused quite a lot of confusion. A number of Protestant groups believe it's speaking about eternal torment in hell. However, it must be compared and analysed in relation to what other passages say, and how the expression has been translated into English and from a practical standpoint. Sulphur burns at around 200 degrees centigrade. That's double the boiling point of water. To be in a fire of burning sulphur, which includes sulphurous noxious, noxious smoke, would mean a very quick death, lasting at best just a minute or two. It would be impossible to survive in such conditions for eternity. 
The passage also speaks about this destruction of those who choose to disobey God, being in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb who's Jesus. If the destruction continues for eternity, then the implication is that Christ and the angels are also present there for eternity. But Revelation 20 tells that after judgment is pronounced on Satan, he will be thrown into the lake of fire, of burning sulphur. So if one extrapolates that Satan and those who have accepted his lies are all destroyed by fire, Christ and the holy angels must be there too. But in Revelation 21 verses 1 to 3 speaks about a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells with his people. So where then is Christ the Lamb? Is he in the fire with Satan or is he with his people in the new creation? Would Christ have given his life been tortured and persecuted to save sinners from their sins, only to spend eternity keeping people alive in conditions where it's impossible to live for more than a few moments? This scenario is totally at odds with what the rest of the Bible teaches. The problem lies with the phrase forever and ever. People assume that it always means for eternity. But it also means for as long as it lasts. And here's an example. From Isaiah 34 verse 10, there's a verse that mentions the destruction of Edom. It says, The fire will not be quenched night and day, and its smoke will rise forever. The question is, is Edom still burning? No. The same was said of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those fires have died out. There is no more smoke. They've stopped because there's nothing combustible left to burn. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 adds this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and that that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root nor a branch will be left to them. That describes total destruction. The third message we've been talking about today that goes to the world is about the consequences of obedience to God or to man. You need to choose to obey God, to be true to him as one of the saints and receive the reward of faithfulness rather than the punishment of disobedience. Still, I 
Hear my heart.